This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I try not to use a lot of obscenity on this podcast because I'm a wholesome kind of guy, at least when the mics are on. Um, but there are times when the imperative of reporting the news compels me to share something with you. And that is what has been entered into the congressional record is the phrase pussy ass bitch. Now, I'm only telling you this because pussy ass bitch is in the congressional record. If pussy ass bitch was not in the congressional record, I probably would let it go. And it's related to Donald Trump, but Donald Trump is not the one who said it has to do with the hearing yesterday by the newly Republican-controlled House Oversight Committee, and I'll have more on this later in the podcast, uh, in which Chrissy Tagan posted something on Twitter in which she called the then-president of the United States, let's just say, P-A-B. And the Trump White House asked that that be taken down. And so the woman who at that time, her name is Anika Navaroli, was a senior uh, executive at Twitter in charge of standards and that kind of thing. She testifies, please excuse my language. Um, And what did the Trump White House do? Uh, Asked a Democratic congressman. The White House reached out to ask this tweet be removed. It was my team's job. This fell underneath the policy for abusive behaviors. And we evaluated it under our insults policy. At the time, up to three insults were allowed. Like, what? I mean, it sounds like a kind of thing uh, in uh, grade school where, you know, you can make fun of somebody, but if you do it three times, you got to go sit in the corner and or write on the blackboard. Up to three insults were allowed. Does it matter what kind of insults they were? I mean, it just shows you. And we'll get into more of that later. All right. A little bit of a... uh, flap with a reporter getting arrested. This is actually kind of outrageous. Evan Lambert of News Nation was out covering a press event in Ohio, an event with Governor Mike DeWine. And he's, you know, you see the stand-ups all the time from the White House briefing room. He was doing a live hit as Governor DeWine was going to speak. Uh, The purpose was an update on a train derailment with toxic chemicals in the state. So, I don't know, the authorities went over and asked him to stop talking because the governor was about to speak. As far as I can tell, he did. Shortly after that, the police arrested him for criminal trespass and disorderly conduct. Now, sometimes, you know, you do have situations, especially if it's crowded, where you get into a dust-up over security or something, uh, or even your right to stand there with the local cops. But that doesn't appear to have happened here. He's doing the stand-up, and then they said, you got to stop talking, and he stops talking. So he goes to jail for a number of hours, and then he gets out last night, and he goes on the air with Ashley Banfield to talk about it. And here's what Evan Lambert said. I'm just trying to do my job as I'm continuing to do right now. And, you know, that's what it's all about, protecting the First Amendment and democracy and trying to help people get information. We were talking about this major accident that impacted hundreds, thousands of people in this town. And that's that's what he had to say. Um, So... 
He also said that no journalist expects to be arrested when you're doing your job. Duh. I think that's pretty basic. Now, in fairness, Mike DeWine apparently didn't know anything about this and apologized. Uh, the governor is saying, it's always been my practice if I'm doing a press conference, if someone wants to report out there, they want to be talking to people back on a channel or whatever, they have every right to do that. If someone was stopped from doing that or told they could not do that, that was wrong. It was nothing I authorized, nothing I would want to see happen. Uh, I'm certainly very, very sorry that happened. I don't have all the facts, but he or she or whoever was arrested had every right to be there. So I would like to see the police held accountable for this. Okay, on what basis do you charge a reporter with criminal trespass? All right. Um, not good news at Disney. You know, Bob Iger, the CEO, was uh, brought back to be the savior of the company. Well, uh, he has had to take some painful steps. He doesn't maybe have the old Disney magic or maybe the old Disney magic doesn't exist anymore. 7,000 layoffs for Disney, um, trying to cut $5 billion in costs, reorganizing the company. Uh, you know, this is, a lot of this has to do with the streaming service because, you know, there's too many streaming services. Nobody can afford to pay for them all. And so Disney's numbers of new subscribers slowed significantly. And that, of course, you know, it can affect the economic status of the company. Um, and Disney's got plenty of company, as I should say. Uh, all of these, you know, Amazon and Google and Facebook, um, all with tens of thousands of layoffs. And now Disney joining the club. Story number one. You know, there's more talk about Joe Biden's State of the Union than usual. I mean, he did the typical thing that presidents do the day after the speech, meaning yesterday. He went out to Wisconsin and he's going to Florida today. And, you know, you try to kind of get a little bit of a bump or a little bit of momentum from your speech. But the reason that the media certainly are continuing to buzz about this uh, has to do with, I have a column today about how the State of the Union, you know, there's a lot of people say, you know, you could just deliver it by email. It's all Woodrow Wilson's fault because he revived the practice in 1913 of delivering a speech to Congress. For the previous 100 plus years, it had just been a written message. Uh, and now, of course, it's this extravaganza with the big media buildup and so forth. But it's also scripted. It's also choreographed. You know, the shout outs to people in the crowd, the laundry list of things that we're going to do to make our country great and even greater. And here, though, was a real moment, an unscripted moment. People even preparing it, comparing it to the British Parliament in question time. So Biden is not letting go of this Medicare and Social Security issue. Uh, you know, as I said yesterday, it's kind of a phony issue. I mean, the issue, the macro issue of what are we going to do about these two giant entitlement programs to prevent them from going bankrupt is something that's been in politics and Democrats have been accusing Republicans of wanting to slash or cut or annihilate Medicare and Social Security for 40 years. But now you have a contrast that Joe Biden can draw. And again, Kevin McCarthy took this off the table. He told this to the president at the White House. He said it publicly. So it, that part is a bit of a phony issue. It's a straw man. But in politics, this is what you do. You sense a vulnerability on the other side and you try to make a big deal out of it. So here's Biden yesterday uh, in Wisconsin. Washington Post story says, 
When I raised the plans of some of their members in their caucus to cut Social Security, Marjorie Taylor Greene and others stood up and said, liar, liar, the president is saying, I think, with some enjoyment. Well, guess what? I will remind you that Rick Scott from Florida, the guy who ran a U.S. Senate campaign, has a plan. I got his brochure right here. So he's probably waving it, you know, uh, requiring that entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare would sunset every five years, and then you'd have to have a new congressional vote to continue them. Um, since he was in Wisconsin, Biden also took it, uh, sen- a shot at Senator Ron Johnson, who uh, won a tough re-election race, and who said, this is last year, that Social Security and Medicare should not be entitlement programs, but should be discretionary programs. This is beltway jargon, I know, it could put you to sleep. But discretionary means Congress can approve money for it or not approve money for it. Entitlement means it's law. You're entitled to it. I mean, if you worked and paid into the trust fund for these two programs, you're entitled to it. Of course, you're only entitled to it till it goes bankrupt, and then you're not entitled to it anymore. So there is a larger issue here. Uh, Ron Johnson, statement to the Washington Post, President Biden is lying about me. He lied last night. He lied again today. I want to save these programs. I have simply pointed out the greatest threat to these programs is out-of-control debt and deficits. We need a process to prioritize spending and decrease our deficits. Now, Biden also taking a shot at Republican Senator Mike Lee from Utah. And television, I think, was ahead of him on this. There's a 2010 video from when Mike Lee, I think, is first running for the Senate, in which he says uh, it is his objective to phase out Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid need to be pulled up by the roots. Biden, uh, well, they sure didn't like me calling them out on it. A lot of Republicans, their dream is to cut Social Security and Medicare. Let me just say, it's your dream, but I'm going to, with my veto pen, make it a nightmare. Now, Lee's people say, well, the video was longer than that. And he said we would, in this video from, what is it now, 13 years ago, that we would hold harmless those who are current beneficiaries. That's pretty standard. The argument is always what to do with future beneficiaries. Um, nobody politically can get away with saying, okay, you're on Social Security now, we're cutting your benefits in half, or whatever. It always has to be done for people down the road. And uh, also, you know, the White House putting out a list of John Thune, who told Bloomberg last fall that um, changes to entitlements have to be discussed. Now, look, it's not an irresponsible position. It depends on how tightly you tie it to the debt ceiling, but it's not an irresponsible position to say, we have to do something to save these programs. Basically, Congress has a long history of waiting until the last minute and then, you know, everybody holds their nose and and does some kind of fix. It's probably likely at some point the retirement age will have to be raised or benefits will have to be trimmed or something. But it's like the third rail of American politics right now. Okay, here's the New York Times take. Aides said the president returned to the White House uh, late Tuesday astonished that Republicans had played into his hands, giving him a primetime opportunity to look commanding on an issue that resonates deeply with many Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Um, since he defeated, this is an interesting point, since he defeated Trump in 2020, Biden hasn't really had a, a good political villain, says the Times, because the Dems controlled everything, right? So, you know, he was fighting with Joe Manchin. He was fighting with Kirsten Sinema. Um, but now he can run against House Republicans. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the lead Heckler uh, was quoted as saying, if the American people had been on the House floor listening to that speech, 
Would have been a lot worse names than I called him. She called him a liar, among other things. Um, she said, was asked would she worried about being uh, penalized or rebuked for all the shouting she did. Remember, she's a key ally now of Kevin McCarthy. She said, not one single bit. I have the speaker's support, and he has mine. Now, here's an interesting little tidbit. Uh, some guy is quoted by the New York Times as saying, if this... If that had been said in the British House of Commons, it would have stopped at the word liar. The Speaker of the House of Commons would have immediately intervened, giving the person the opportunity to withdraw their remark. And if they refused, escorted them out. So there's a lot of shouting back and forth and, you know, the right honorable gentleman and all that in the House of Commons, particularly when the Prime Minister is being barraged with questions. But I guess even in London... There's lines you can't cross. You can say, you know, you can find fancy ways to insult somebody and say, uh, you know, this stretches the bounds of credulity or whatever the phrase might be. But you can't call somebody a liar. I did not know that. I thought you could do it just about anything. Okay, also Rick Scott responding. Uh, he was, you know, in charge of the Senate re-election effort in the last cycle. Uh, Joe Biden rambled for a while. This is on Twitter. Seems he forgot to share the facts. In my plan, I suggested the following. All federal legislation subsets in five years. If a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. This is clearly and obviously an idea aimed at dealing with all the crazy new laws our Congress has been passing of late. Joe Biden is confused to suggest that this means I want to cut Social Security or Medicare is a lie and is a dishonest move from a very confused president. Do you think he's making the point that he thinks Biden is confused? Does he think I want to get rid of the Navy or the Border Patrol? Okay, but the fact is you wouldn't get rid of those programs. And, and nobody's going to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. But Scott's defense is not that convincing. It means every five years there would have to be a new battle over reestablishing the laws for these two programs, mainly for elderly Americans who vote in significant numbers. And... That would include, you know, should we cut it? Should we change the rules? I mean, again, they're going to have to do this regardless. But I think to say, well, I want to sunset all federal programs every five years is not the world's greatest defense uh, to the, the charge that, yes, and that includes Social Security and Medicare. Meanwhile, you know, maybe this is just, you know, a beltway bubble kind of thing. Because while even some Republicans grudgingly said that President Biden, A, gave a very good and forceful speech, he's not a great orator, as everybody knows, uh, and that he looked better, and I'll get to some conservatives in a second, than the Republicans, the number of people watching was 27 million, according to the Nielsen numbers. That's down 29% lowest audience for State of the Union in 30 years. Last year it was 38 million, now 27 million. Now that's still probably the biggest audience that Joe Biden's going to have this year. It's not to be scoffed at, but the numbers plummeting suggest that people are not that enthusiastic about these long. I mean, he spoke for 73 minutes, and that's become standard. I mean, before Bill Clinton, the speeches, a lot of them were like 35, maybe 40 minutes. Then Clinton would just go for an hour and a half and, you know, just couldn't stop talking. Everybody say, well, that's, that's Bill for you. And now everybody seems to go at least an hour, and that's why they take on this laundry list quality. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. 
formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Okay, story two. Here's a couple of uh, conservative writers grappling with the SOTU. Uh, National Review. If you're looking for a line-by-line refutation of Joe Biden's various misrepresentations, demagogueries, and folderall, you don't hear that word much anymore, it's almost like malarkey, <laughs> then you have come to the wrong place, my friend. You will only find evil here. In other words, this National Review writer knows that this may not be popular, what he's writing. Forget for a moment about the substance of it. Do you care about the substance, really? What is your delineated policy response to the fentanyl crisis, other than, gee, this is awful? People react to an emotional vibe. And Biden, after carefully setting moderate expectations during the week, came and delivered a State of the Union that played as a folksy stump speech, Uncle Joe delivering a working-class colloquy. It was quite effective as a rhetorical ploy. Biden played a losing economic and electoral polling hand. Remember, his polls are way down, even for among Democrats who don't want him to run again. And we'll see if this changes or it's just a blip. Um, with the public as deftly as possible, with infuriatingly unwitting assistance from his audience, meaning the GOP members who were there, uh, leaning into his retail political skills, excuse me, 50 years of memorized blue-collar shtick, and the laughter and encouragement of the friendly half of the room. He began working them like a comedian on a purely aesthetic level, um, it worked to his benefit, making him seem in command of his brief in a way he really has seemed to recently. This brings me to my other reaction to the address, says the National Review writer. I wish to God this was not the case. Why won't the backbench Republicans just shut up and let this moron finish his speech? The rules for how to handle hecklers during a late-night stand-up comedy routine should not have to apply to a president of the United States delivering a State of the Union, regardless of how disingenuous or downright insulting that address might be. The story was already destined to be Joe Biden does surprisingly well, but now it will also be Joe Biden faces repeated heckles from masses of GOP congressmen during the State of the Union. And that's exactly right. And you know who agrees with National Review? Kevin McCarthy. 
There were a couple of times he just looked pained and he was shushing and I saw him do a couple of TV interviews and, you know, he's not going to throw his members under the bus, but, you know, they're very passionate about these issues. But he did not want them to misbehave in this fashion. The other piece, Jonah Goldberg of the Dispatch, whom I've known forever, um, offers this take. The downside, and Jonah is sometimes given to uh, rather flowery rhetoric, but he, he nails his point here. The downside of being a mere mortal, ward-healing politico, who was bored when the Battle of Stalingrad was still raging, who joined the Senate the same year The Godfather debuted and Don McLean released American Pie, is almost nobody is going to fall in love with you or buy that you're a transformative figure. Talking here, obviously, about... Joe Biden. This is why Biden's support is so soft among Democrats. Poll after poll shows most Democrats don't want him to run again. Barely one in five Democrats under the age of 45 say he should serve another term. This explains the excessive fawning over Biden. Democratic leaders know all this better than we do, and they are desperate to convince the rank and file that they should love the guy. So why is this an asset for Biden, Jonah asks? Because if you're the kind of politician left-wingers can't fall in love with, like a Barack Obama. I'm throwing that in there. You're also likely to be the kind of politician right-wingers have a hard time hating. And this, I think, is a very salient point. While the Democrats are not deeply emotionally invested in liking Joe Biden, they are profoundly existentially invested in hating Donald Trump. Jonah, not a Trump fan, if you did not already know that. You can't get low propensity voters to turn out in large numbers in two ways. You, know, you can get them to turn out in two ways. By exploiting their love for your candidate or exploiting their hatred for the other party's candidate. Sure, there's a lucrative market for apocalyptic fear-mongering on the right. But he quotes then Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who delivered the GOP response, now governor of Arkansas, of course, as saying, the choice is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal and crazy. She's right, but this was the same day her boss was peddling claims that Ron DeSantis is a pedophile. And I will come to that uh, in the very next segment. I actually didn't set it up that way, but here we go. Finally, Jonas says, progressives do a lot of crazy stuff, and I write about it often. But in the political arms race of which side is more beholden to crazy, the GOP is losing. If you want to argue that this is unfair on the merits, I'm more than open to it. But as a matter of public perception, it's not close. Yes, media bias plays a role, but media bias always plays a role. Republicans once knew how to deal with that problem. Now it gives them an excuse not to care about how normal voters see them. So I'm sure uh, Jonah's inbox is filling up after writing that. And now to number three. And this is serious stuff. I, I you know, have, have covered Donald Trump for a long time. And, you know, we've all of us have been through some of his, let's just say, lower or even below-the-belt moments, whether it's asshole countries or the kind of name-calling uh, that he has done. And now we have a situation where on his Truth Social page, Donald Trump is attacking Ron DeSantis, who obviously will likely run against him, having to do with something 20 years ago when he spent one year, when DeSantis spent one year, I think he had gotten out of Harvard and didn't, wasn't ready to go to Yale yet. So um, teaching high school. 
five posts, two of the posts that Trump published, and this came out before in the New York Times story that I'll get to in a second, were from the far-right website hillreporter.com, claiming that DeSantis had been photographed partying with underage students at the Darlington School, a private school in Rome, Georgia, where he taught from 2001 to 02 for that one school year. And Trump also reposted uh, something by a Truth Social member uh, who uses, I think, looks like a fake name, Dong Chan Lee, who uses a profile photo of Pepe the Frog with the Trump hairdo. You needed to know that, I know. The image showed what appeared to be, it was kind of a little bit blurry, DeSantis flanked by three young women. Here is Ron DeSanctimonious grooming high school girls with alcohol as a teacher. So the president, the former president, excuse me, of the United States is accusing the governor of Florida of grooming high school girls. And you know what a radioactive phrase that is. Based on nothing more than this one photo and a couple of posts from this right-wing paper. And so Trump throws in some sarcastic language. You know, he reposts this and he said, that's not Ron, is it? He would never do such a thing. And another one, he said, no way. Um, and then he said, Ron DeSantis was having a drink party with his students when he was a high school teacher. Having drinks with underage girls and cuddling with them, there's no evidence of that, by the way, certainly looks pretty gross. Now, first of all, think about Donald Trump and all the affairs that he has been accused of having um, and the serial marriages and everything. So, He's going after DeSantis about this subject. So New York Times last year had a story. It was a kind of a profile of Ron DeSantis, a uh, history teacher at this private school. And the thing I remember about it is that one black student, now obviously much older, said she, he thought, she thought he was uh, insensitive toward her views. And they did talk about how he was seen to be a very cool guy. And sometimes there would be parties with students. So um, the New York Times, again, telling us last year, two former women, excuse me, two former students, both women, remembered him attending at least two parties where alcohol was served. But they said the parties took place after graduation and that they were not bothered by his presence at the time, although they question it now. It was his first job out of Yale. He was cute. We really didn't think too much about it, one of the former students said. So I guess it was Yale, and then he went to Harvard. So how did the governor deal with this? I thought pretty effectively, because he's going to have to learn, if he runs, how to deflect this kind of thing. And here's what Governor DeSantis said. I just say this. I spend my time delivering results for the people of Florida and fighting against Joe Biden. I don't spend my time trying to smear other Republicans. And, and by the way, there's no allegation that, you know, he had a relationship with any student. It's all based on, you know, one blurry picture, maybe two, and a couple of people from that school 20 years ago saying, yeah, he came to a couple of parties where there was alcohol. I, I hardly think that's a felony or even a political felony. Okay, story number four is the House oversight hearing on Twitter going back to Hunter Biden and Twitter deciding to block any sharing of that New York Post story on the infamous laptop. Now, one of the reasons I think this hearing wasn't 
particularly explosive, although it did get heated on both sides, is that it's not just that this happened uh, almost three years ago. It's that two days after Twitter stupidly, absurdly, ridiculously, and with an ample amount of bias, blocked that New York Times story on the laptop, Twitter said it was wrong. Twitter apologized. Jack Dorsey, the CEO at the time, we made a mistake. So now, because the Republicans now have control of of a committee, they hauled all these former Twitter executives before the panel to beat them up over this, which they've already acknowledged, including these people, was a mistake. I mean, it was a bad mistake. It's worth, uh, and it was was poorly handled, horribly handled by the media. But Elon Musk runs Twitter now. In any event, the chief standards person, uh, Vijaya Gatti, was one who testified. In hindsight, Twitter should have reinstated the post account immediately. Then Yoel Roth, who was the most active guy on standards and continued for a while under Musk before quitting, said that he thought the initial call to block users from sharing the New York Post piece was wrong. He said the company made the decision because the Biden laptop story was reminiscent of the 2016 Russian hack of DNC emails. Twitter made a mistake, Ralph said. I've been clear that in my judgment at the time, Twitter should not have taken action to block the Post reporting. And just 24 hours after doing so, the company acknowledged its error, uh, but said didn't have all the, he says didn't have all the information at the time. So it's, there's a little bit of beating a dead horse here. But now Democrats on the committee also wanted to get in the game. And look, there's absolutely no question. You've heard me talk about this and write about this um, quite extensively that there was a left-wing bias against conservatives at Twitter, the internal emails and memos um, put out under the rubric, the Twitter files, thanks to Elon Musk, make that absolutely clear. But it did go both ways. So, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was questioning uh, these witnesses. When we got to the part about Donald Trump saying of her and other squad members, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but like, why don't you go back to where you came from and work on making those places better? And that was an unbelievable uproar at the time, the President of the United States saying that about uh, members of Congress who were women of color. So what happened? One of those witnesses said that she had said that that should be taken down, that Trump, the Trump tweet should be deleted in violation of Twitter's rules. She was overruled by her boss, and it wasn't. And more importantly, Twitter then changed the rules. where There had literally been an explicit phrase saying you can't say something like, go back to where you came from, go back to your country. Changed the rules to say that was okay so that the president, the 45th president, would not be in violation. So the Dems scored some points too. I mean, Twitter just basically got pressure from all sides, especially had a cozy relationship with the FBI, and made a lot of bad calls or made a lot of calls that were indefensible under its own rules or would change its own rules or ignore its own rules. I mean, it was a mess. And that's why I think Elon Musk has done a public service by putting some of this out. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number five. I hope you don't think I'm going overboard on this AI stuff. But 
I think, you know, it may well turn out to be more Silicon Valley hype. But I think it's more likely that we will look back and say this was a turning point in terms of the internet and search and just how we live our lives. I mean, it's in its infancy right now. I mean, AI has been around for a long time. So the tech columnist, Kevin Roos at the New York Times, a smart guy who writes about this, um, I think it's worth sharing some of his observations. So I mentioned yesterday that Microsoft, one of the original investors, including Elon Musk, in this open AI thing, which gave rise to this you know, very hot chatbot GPT, which can do all kinds of writing. Um, now, Microsoft is incorporating this AI technology in its Bing search engine, which I've been trying to figure out how it works, but it turns out the average person can't get it. It's just a small group of testers. Um, so, but Kevin Roos had a chance to fool around with it, and that's why I want to bring you the, the first-hand account. Type in a prompt. Say, write me a menu for a vegetarian dinner party and the left side of your screen fills up with the standard ads and links to re recipe websites. But on the right side, Bing's AI engine starts typing out a response in full sentences, often annotated with links to the websites it's retrieving information from. So you ask a, a follow-up question or make a more detailed request. Write a grocery list for that menu sorted by aisle with amounts needed to make enough food for eight people. You can open up a chat window and type it. Interesting. So, uh, Roos writes, I tested the new Bing for a few hours, and it's a marked improvement over Google, which of course is scaring the crap out of Google. It's also an improvement over ChatGPT, which despite its many capabilities, was never designed to be used as a search engine. It doesn't cite its sources, it has trouble incorporating up-to-date information. Um, so while ChatGPT can write a beautiful poem about baseball, or draft a testy email to your landlord, it's less suited to telling you what happened in Ukraine last week or where to find a decent meal in Albuquerque. Something I often wonder. Okay, so Bing did well at a variety of search-related tasks, including creating travel itineraries, brainstorming gift ideas. This is sounding like disturbingly human, right? And summarizing books and movie plots. Users can now open a panel in Edge. Edge is um, the new browser, whereas Bing, I guess, is the search engine. Type in a general topic and get an AI-generated photograph. Also, a blog post, an email, list of ideas, written in one of five tones. Okay, you got to know what the five tones are, right? Professional, casual, informational, enthusiastic, or <laughs> funny. Okay. They can paste that text directly into a web browser, a social media app, or an email client. This is hard to fathom here. Users can chat with Edge's built-in AI about any website they're viewing, asking for summaries, additional information. In one eye-popping demo, a Microsoft exec navigated to the website of The Gap, opened a PDF file with the company's most recent quarterly financial results, asked Edge to both summarize the key takeaways and create a table comparing it with the most recent financial results from another clothing company, Lululemon. The AI did both almost instantly. I mean, this is nothing like what we thought computers could do uh, when it was HAL in 2000. You know, just people trying to imagine what the science fiction future would look like. Now, 
it's not perfect. I'm waiting for some kind of caveat here, to be sure. It is prone to spouting confident-sounding nonsense. Yes, so are a lot of uh, media people I know. And its answers can be erratic. When I gave it a basic math puzzle, if a dozen eggs cost 24 cents, how many eggs can you buy for a dollar? It got the answer wrong. So how can it do all these unbelievable, amazing things and not do a, a math problem that probably a fifth grader could do? It also didn't do well when I asked for a list of kid-friendly activities happening in my hometown this coming weekend. Among Bing's suggestions were a Lunar New Year parade, which happened last weekend, a fundraiser for a local school that happened two weekends ago, and a tie-dye Hanukkah celebration, which happened in mid-December. But anyway, he, he, he closes by saying the full implications of this, I'm still trying to wrap my head around, and me too. Um, and which is why I think a year from now, two years from now, we will look back, assuming this, they're able to correct a lot of the built-in flaws, and think that the pre-AI era was like when you, when you walked around with a cell phone that couldn't do anything but make a phone call and couldn't even do that well. Anyway, I'm out of it for now. Out of breath, that is. <laughs> Thank you for coming along for the ride. You can subscribe at Amazon Music and get this podcast out of the ads there. Nobody tells me to make these plugs, but I want to make it good for you. And with that, see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.